Okay, well, let's bow our heads. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for the way you call us together to be your people. We thank you that you gather us around your table where we are united in this, this one meal instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we spend this time together today and over the next six weeks reflecting on, on this very, very special meal, we ask that you would you'd give us a fresh insight into the deeper significance of what it is that Christ did and what it is that we are doing whenever we take these elements of bread and wine into our hands. Now, as we, as we reflect on your word, we ask that you would speak to us we might hear you speak very clearly. Now hear us as we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the heart of our worship as, as Christians, um, regardless in many ways of what our, our, our own uh, flavor is, what our own tradition is, uh, lies the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a, it's a celebration that, um, that I think all Christians have have in common it's around the lord's table that we are are most united but it's also around the lord's table in many ways that we seem to be most divided different churches different denominations they approach the lord's table with a variety of different understandings um for some uh, when they think about the sacrament of the lord's supper uh, they see christ as being physically present in a very, very real physical sense, Christ is there. For others, when they think about it, they, they, they see Christ spiritually present in the midst of his people. For some, the sacrament can only be presided over by ordained clergy. For others, it can be done in any context, by anyone. For some, it's a covenant meal that, that, um, that, in which God binds his people to one another. And binds his people to himself. For others it's simply a memorial meal. Where we remember with gratitude. What Christ has done for us. For still others again. It's in the Lord's Supper. That Christ is sacrificed. Every time. The Lord's Supper is celebrated. As a, as a propitiation. For the sins of God's people. And for others. It's just something that we do every now and again. With, with bread and wine. Or grape juice. In different churches, different traditions, it's called different things. For some, it's, it's Holy Communion, uh, a meal in which we share communion with one another, where we share communion with our Lord. Uh, for others, it's the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving, and thanksgiving is a central aspect to, to, to this meal. For others, it's called the, the Lord's Supper, since it's, uh, it's the meal that was instituted by our Lord. For others, it's, it's called the sacrifice of the Mass, where the, the body and blood of Christ is offered by a priest acting on Christ's behalf as a sacrifice of propitiation to God for the sins of his people. Now, incidentally, the Mass is called the Mass in Roman Catholic tradition because it takes place after a part of the service called the dismissal. There's a time in worship where those who were not yet fully received into fellowship in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, who were not yet a part of the church, 
they were dismissed. Uh, in Latin, this is called missio. Uh, it's a word where we get the word mission from, to send out, to send someone out. Um, they could participate in the main part of the liturgy, but they couldn't stay in for the sacrament. So at that point, uh, they were dismissed. They were sent out. And so everything that followed took on that name, missio, took on the form of the name mass. So that's where the word mass actually comes from in the Roman Catholic tradition. And for many of us, although we participate in the Lord's Supper regularly, we we tend to have quite a limited understanding of, of what it is that we're doing, of, of, of what's actually going on. We know that it's something we're supposed to do. And we know that it's something we're supposed to do regularly. But beyond that, we're not very sure of what's happening or why it is we're doing what we're doing, except that Jesus said we were to do this. And I think most of us do have a sense that there's... Um, there's something different from normal, something other taking place in this meal. But few of us have any real framework for being able to verbalize what it is that might be going on in the context of the Lord's Supper. And, and during the course of this study, over the next few sessions, we're going to take a closer look at what the Lord's Supper actually is. What's going on in the context of this particular sacrament, what Scripture says about it, how it's been practiced, how it's been understood, in, in the context of various church traditions. And I hope that as we do this, we're going to come to a deeper appreciation of all that's involved in the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But first of all, just a very, very brief word about sacraments. I know some folks are coming from a Roman Catholic tradition, and you may very well be familiar with the seven sacraments that there are in the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism, Confirmation, uh, Eucharist, penance and reconciliation, formerly known as, or more commonly known as confession, um, anointing of the sick, more commonly known as the last rites, holy orders, and marriage. Uh, the Orthodox Church uh, also has seven sacraments, almost the same, but not quite, one or two differences. But in, in the Presbyterian tradition, in the Reformed tradition, we have only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, a sacrament is defined as, as follows. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them in the service of God in Christ, according to his word. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, let's let, try and break this down just, just a little bit more for you. Very briefly, um, sacraments are to be viewed in the Reformed tradition in the context of God's covenant with his people. Uh, that in the sacraments, God is promising and he's ratifying his covenant promises to his people. A sacrament is something that God himself in the person of Christ has instituted and commanded his people to participate in. It's in the sacraments that we meet Christ face to face and are not only reminded of, but in some way we receive his grace through these elements of, of water, of bread, and of wine. It's in the sacraments that we're reminded that we are no longer 
our own, but that we belong to Christ. It's in the sacraments that we're seen to be set apart from the rest of the world. Through baptism, we enter into, into a covenant relationship with God. And in the Lord's Supper, we share, we share a covenant family meal with the body of Christ in the very real presence of Christ himself. And it's in the light of all of this that we're sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that just now, but over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these themes and develop some of them uh, some more. In order to begin uh, looking at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, um, it's necessary for us, as it is when we look at anything, uh, to, to, to put it into its biblical context. The, the, the first chronological mention of the Lord's Supper is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we learn that this sacrament was instituted on the night when Christ was betrayed. And we know from the Gospels that the night when Christ was betrayed, according to Mark chapter 14, was the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So before we do anything else, before we even look at the Last Supper, and start to think about the different ways that people have thought about the Lord's Supper, we need to understand the event called the Passover and the subsequent historical celebration of the Passover. <coughs> now, to understand the Passover, you've got to go back to the early chapters of Exodus. There you find the children of Israel in captivity, enslaved by a cruel and harsh dictator, this, this Pharaoh who places impossible demands upon the children of Israel time and time again and who tries to wipe them out by having, uh, by having their sons put to death at birth. This Pharaoh who, when ordered by God through his servant Moses to set his people free, he hardens his heart again and again against God's word repeatedly and refuses to do what God commands. This captivity to a cruel taskmaster is one of the opening themes of the whole drama of the Passover, enslavement to one who's not their true master. The God who is their true master demands their freedom. And as the story unfolds, we see that he will free those who are his own. Throughout Scripture, these themes of captivity and enslavement and, and, and redemption are brought out again and again and again, and, and all of them ultimately point to the cross. But more about that in future studies. Time after time, according to the word of God, Moses demands, let my people go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps on refusing, time after time. And so God sends plague after plague upon the people until in a final act of his anger, his wrath against this cruel tyrant, he promises that on a particular night, he will go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn from the lowest to the highest in the land of Egypt will die. Now, this, this isn't a threat, it's a promise made by God, but this, this is much more significant than we in our postmodern Western culture actually realize. We, we do absolutely reel in horror at the thought of the death of any child. But in this ancient Near Eastern culture, there's, there's more than just the death 
of a child at stake, as bad as that is in and of itself. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller makes the following comments about the importance of the firstborn. He, he, he writes this. John Levinson, a Jewish scholar who teaches at Harvard, has written the death and resurrection of the beloved son. That's the name of the book. Um, in this volume, he reminds us that ancient cultures were not as individualistic as our own. People's hopes and dreams were never for their own personal success, prosperity, or prominence. Since everyone was part of a family and no one lived apart from the family, these things were, were only sought for the entire clan. We must also remember the ancient law of primogeniture. The oldest son got the majority of the estate and wealth so the family would not lose its place in society. An individualistic culture like ours, an adult's identity and self-worth is often bound up in abilities and in achievements. But in ancient times, all the hopes and dreams of a man and his family rested in the firstborn son. The death of the firstborn son would be analogous to a surgeon losing the use of his hands or a visual artist losing the, u the use of her eyes. So it's in the light of this context that God promises that every firstborn will die. But the Israelites were commanded by God to take a lamb, a male lamb without blemish, to kill it and to put some of the blood on the lintels of their doors. And when God came that night, he would see the blood and he would pass over and he would spare them. Uh, ben Witherington, in his book um, entitled Making a Meal of It, makes a, uh, makes a very interesting point about the institution of the Passover. He notes that this is not something that was instituted in the context of temple worship. There was no temple. There wasn't even a tabernacle at this time. The people were living in their own homes in Egypt, and it was in the context of their homes that this was to take place. Each family nurtured a lamb. And the lamb was slaughtered in the context of the family. Now, as part of the institution of this perpetual celebration of Passover, um, Exodus 13 begins with God requiring that the firstborn of Israel be given to him. So here you've very clearly got the two sides of this event seen in the context of family and clan and, uh, and, and, and future promise. And curse. On the one side, the family that loses the firstborn loses, loses all hope and loses their future. Whereas on the other side, the family united by God around this lamb, giving their own firstborn to God, are assured of his redemption and the fulfillment of his covenant promises. Now, it wasn't just any lamb that could be sacrificed, but it was a male lamb without blemish a year old that had to die in order that the household of the family, the firstborn, would be spared. A life given for a life. Now, we've spoken about this before, but this whole concept of, of substitution is something that's, that's developed throughout Scripture and it's most fully demonstrated in the cross of Christ. You've got many passages throughout the Old Testament where you find the phrases, you know, Christ died for our sins, he gave himself for us, some similar type of phrase. 
the, the, the Greek words that tend to be used are anti or hooper. They don't simply mean for, but they, they have a very, very clear sense of instead of or in the place of. So whenever these words are used, you find this sense of substitution. The spotless male lamb was the substitute. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29 tells us what happened on the night appointed by God. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. And so it's in remembering these themes and these, these events that the Jewish people continue even to this day to celebrate faithfully the Passover. And it's in the remembrance of these events that Jesus and his disciples gathered in the upper room to celebrate this meal. The Seder is a meal that's loaded with symbolism as it recounts the events of the Passover. The meal is scripted. It's, it's structured. There's a, a very real sense of formality to this meal. And, and, and each element of the meal points to a specific part of the story. The food that's eaten, the order of the seating, they all have a particular point to make in relation to the story. Bitter herbs, reminders of the bitterness the, the Israelites experienced as slaves in Egypt. The herbs dipped in salt water, a reminder of their tears. Haraset, pureed apples, nuts mixed with wine, a reminder of the mortar that was used to, um, to build in Egypt during their captivity. An egg, the symbol of new birth, new life, new beginnings for the people as they begin their journey to the promised land. Unleavened bread that points to the haste with which the Israelites left Egypt. That same bread broken and shared at a very particular point in the meal. The lamb, a reminder of the Passover lamb that was slain so that they might live. But also throughout this meal there are four cups of wine that are shared as a reminder of God's promises to his people. Each cup reminds them of a promise of God from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The four promises, God says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. We'll look at these in more detail in weeks to come. And not only are the elements in the meal reminders and signs of something that's happened in the past, but in the way the story's told during the course of the meal, there's a sense, a very real sense of active participation of those who are present sharing this meal together. It's told in such a way as to strongly suggest, I was there. This isn't just something that happened in the past. It's not just a story I'm telling. It's my story. I was there. Is the quote from early in the, in the Seder. We, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. 
And the Lord our God brought us forth from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. If the Holy One, blessed be He, had not brought our forefathers forth from Egypt, then we, our children and our children's children, would still be Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the more one tells the story of the departure from Egypt, the more praiseworthy is he. In each generation, let each one look on himself as if he came forth from Egypt. As it is said, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, It is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth from Egypt. So in this this context, the act of remembering is not simply telling a story or bringing something to mind, but it's acknowledging that, that one is an active participant and a beneficiary of all that was achieved in the original event. Now hold on to that, okay? In the context of this meal, there was a looking back to what had happened in the past, the redeeming work of God, delivering his people from slavery, setting them apart and taking them to be his own. There's a past reality, but it also has a present reality in which those who are participating in the meal are, are, are very much a part of that same story. In a very real way, they're receiving the same benefits of those who were originally delivered. In the celebration of the Passover, there, there was also a part of the meal that, that came to look forward. They, they anticipated the time of the coming Messiah, the one who would redeem his people from all captivity, especially from the captivity to sin, a time when God would reign and his peace, his shalom, would be over the entire earth. This is the meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And next time we'll look at how Jesus took this meal and he reinterpreted it and transformed it in the light of the cross. Thank you.